Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Warning. This podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spook. Girls, true crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you Hey, Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I am here with my ghoul friend, Jessica. Hey. Hello. And today we are bringing you another patron select. This episode is dedicated to our patron, Anne. She has chosen the very interesting case that I had not heard of, of Suzanne. I think that's how you say it in real time. I tried to go back and like double check because her name's pronounced very different than what it's spelled. And everything's behind a paywall now. I already, what I already watched and there was like nothing on YouTube. So I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> of Suzanne Cummings and the murder of Roberto Villegas. So buckle in because this is a whole whole fucking thing. I've told Jessica bits and pieces, but she don't know the full tea. We gonna get to that, guys. So Suzanne was one of two daughters of a billionaire arms dealer named Samuel Cummings. And he has uh, an interesting past. Before he was an arms dealer, he was also noted to be in the military and a CIA member for a bit for a minute and i'm like oh, oh shit okay right and uh yes i said billionaire so suzanne and her sister diana were born on july 21st 1962 in monte carlo monaco and that's where they grew up and that was their home but she of course did spend her childhood at a boarding school she went to one in switzerland and after this they did decide to move to the states this was about the 80s and suzanne attended the mount vernon college and then her her sister moved to an estate that their father had purchased next to Warrington, Virginia called Ashland Farm, which is a absolute beautiful property. It is huge. It is over 350 acres. This is a very wealthy area, BT dubs. So Suzanne lived in the main house, which had like all the fancy rich people things like all the statues, you know, all the things you would expect, right? And her sister lived in the one of the smaller kind of simpler houses on the property, which which is actually 
actually people thought was interesting because it was kind of the opposite of their lifestyles and personalities. So her sister Diana was the one who loved designer clothing, loved bags. Chanel was like her favorite and she was very outgoing. She liked to go to parties, had a lot of friends, things like that. While Suzanne was not like that at all. She was very much a homebody. She was very introverted. She rather not go to any parties. She preferred to just kind of like chill, make some pasta, watch Animal Planet, and was described as very serious, didn't show emotions, which was interesting. People that had been around her said they never saw her smile in person, or if they did, it was like once. So she was said to be like emoteless basically, which is interesting. And unfortunately, unless my iPad was just being weird with Hulu, the series I watched it on was Vanity Fair Confidential, but all I could find it on now was Amazon Behind a Paywall. So I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry, but it was good. But she was also a huge animal lover and she... Also was one that she didn't like to like spend her money on frivolous things really. She liked to kind of like keep it in check, but on her animals or to get animals and stuff, she would. That was like the one thing she would spend it on, but that was pretty much it. And it was also said that like in her bedroom, she had like a bunch of stuffed animals like as an adult, like a lot, not just like a few, but like a a lot, a lot. It was weird because like as we get into the investigation and stuff, like one of the cops was like, I thought it was like a kid's room. I was like, oh, okay. I'm like, why do you care, dude? She's rich as fuck. Of course she's gonna have a million stuffed animals. Like, just saying. But she did start to have some red flag behaviors shortly after their move. So, like I said, this community, this is a very wealthy area. Polo is a huge ass thing. Either people in that area, they were like, you either played it, owned a team, or both. Like, that was just the thing to do. Now, Suzanne had gotten into polo. She'd always been into like, animals and horses and rode them and whatnot, but she started to get into polo. So she started taking lessons from a man named Jean-Marie in the spring of 1995. And once she did, she started catching some feelings for him. And she was described as a very jealous person. So much so, she didn't want him to be touching other women, even though literally like, how the fuck you gonna say that? You have no say, just saying. But yeah, she would tell women she'd see around him either as students or just like talking to him to like leave him alone, get away from him, you know, back off, blah, 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 like all of that shit. So she tried to swoop in with him and she offered to buy him horses, trucks, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, he was like, oh God, like he knew what the fuck was going on. And he was just like, you know, he said he wasn't interested and he was like, "I." he had a girlfriend at the time and all of that. And he like declined and he's like, he said he tried to keep it professional, you know, because this was his job. Well, Suzanne did not like rejection. And didn't let her deter her, though, because she started stalking him any any and everywhere he went. <laughs> Literally, she would go and hide behind horse trailers and just be, like, creeping on him and looking at him. And then when he had his then-girlfriend and they'd go to, like, a restaurant or a bar, she would magically end up there, too. And <laughs> And then she would sit at whatever table and literally just death glare the girl the whole fucking time. Yeah, that's the way you get a guy. Just like stare at her. Right? And she, of course, denied all of that. 
but that's usually how these things go, right? And then, like, literally the only reason it stopped was because she met another man that she became enamored with. That is typical. Right? And this other man is our victim of this case. His name is Roberto Vallegas, and he was originally from Argentina. He was described to have come from an impoverished background, but he was an animal lover as well. So when he was old enough, he started working with horses and getting into the horse world because he just had interest in it and, you know, it was something he was good at. He was good with the animals, all of that. So from there, he actually started working his way up and eventually was able to come to the United States. And he would bounce around a little bit before he would end up in Virginia. I'll have more on that later. What brought him to Virginia was he was working for a couple named Susie and Travis Warsham. And he was working at their farm and he was moving up in the horse world. Like, you know, he just started with like some like entry type of jobs and he would get more responsibility and more responsibility. And then they found out he played polo and eventually they're like, well, why don't you be a sub for our team? Because Susie and Travis owned a team, right? Mm -hmm. And then eventually he became a permanent player. So they ended up paying. That was his job. He was being paid to play on their team. And Roberto was very well liked by everybody. He was described as being very popular, very magnetic. Everyone liked him, you know, like they thought he was a great guy. On top of that, while working for Travis and Susie, he lived on the property and kept his horses on their farm and everything, which seems like it was the norm. When they did that, they hired people like they lived on the property type of thing. And he was there for about two-ish years with them. But we're going to jump back to Suzanne now. Her and Roberto met in the summer of 95. So like literally just a couple months after she was like stalking Jean-Marie for all the places. <laughs> and they met at Great Meadow Polo. They were both in their 30s. He was 38, I believe, and she was 34. Weird thing is, I didn't picture her being that old. Right. No, they were both like full. I pictured her being like maybe 21, 22. Oh, no. Oh, no. They're both like full ass adults. And she, of course, because he was a polo player, got more into it and had him start teaching her more about it and all of this. And so they started spending more time together and their relationship grew. And the two of them would actually end up forming their own polo team. And from there, over the next bit, like he... He started going over to Ashland Farm more and he eventually moved his horses over there and she paid for all of the upkeep on the horses. And he himself started like spending more and more time with her and eventually moved to Ashland Farm as well. And it was said that on the outside, it looked like she was just giving him all this money and stuff. And he also referred to her as mother, which I'm like, oh, gross. But I guess like this happened because... It was like a thing like that meant this is someone who's going to take care of me type of thing because she was like paying for everything and like his financial security and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, that's still kind of weird, but okay, not going to judge. She was a sugar mama. Yes, exactly. I was like, that's what that's what's going on there. But like with that said, though, he did a lot of work on the farm like he he did help out a lot and did a lot of stuff. So it's not like he was just, you know, fucking around, blah, blah, blah. It was also said that Roberto was described as someone who, like, lived in the moment. He didn't really care about money or stability or think in the future, really. Just kind of, like, 
a fun-loving person until he met Suzanne. And when he met her, they were obviously polar opposites. Like I said, she was this quiet homebody and he was super outgoing. He was Mr. Popular. People fucking loved him. And once they started their relationship, she changed a little bit. She would go out to games and parties and stuff with him. Everyone said, you know, she was like super in love with him and they seemed so happy until they weren't. Just kidding. (coughs) Always think of that fucking meme. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, they, they seemed great, right? And this lasted about a year and a half. Well, her parents, obviously, I'm sure you can guess they because of like, I don't know, they just they weren't super into the fact that she was with him because of the fact he didn't come from money and crap like that. So, you know, they weren't really supportive of this relationship. And apparently around, you know, this after this year and a half, Roberto had been saying that they were going him and his girlfriend, they were going to leave Virginia and purchase a bunch of land and turn it into a wildlife center in Montana and start a family. But Suzanne didn't want any of this, apparently. And she was kind of like starting to be that affection and stuff she had. And infatuation was kind of like dwindling. And even her mom said in an interview, like, she didn't want to have kids with him. I mean, but she didn't like him either. So who knows? But she said, like, you know, she never said that. This was all his plan and what he wanted. This is not what she wanted. So some on Roberto. He is said to have a history of, or no, he does have a history of being a cheater. <laughs> yes. With Suzanne, it was allegedly the case here as well. It comes out later that like nobody really knew that she was super possessive and jealous with him, but obviously a cheater with that obviously is not going to mix well, right? And the whole Jean-Marie thing that I told you all about Nobody really knew about that too much. That came out later when a reporter who investigated this case talked to him and he told them. He didn't make a big deal about it. He's like, oh, because she left, she finally fucking left me alone, like whatever type of thing. Right. I mean, if you're not the you're not the victim anymore, you're going to just like go away. Let it go. Exactly. Yeah. So there was the story that he, that Roberto had told friends actually, that one day Deanna was laying out tanning or something like that. And he walked by and she snapped a towel on him, like on his butt slash leg, backside, whatever, to mess with him, you know, like snapping people with towels. Mm -hmm. And then he said, you know, they laughed about it, but then Suzanne either saw it or heard them talking about it and then came out and she flipped the fuck out. And he said that she said, he needed to go up in their room and take a nap or go to bed or something. That's awkward. What the fuck? Yeah. So he's like, okay, whatever, and like went upstairs. But apparently there was like no exchange really with Suzanne and Deanna because like they were super, super, super close. Like they were twin. They were fraternal twins, but like they were each other's other half pretty much. You know what I mean? So like obviously that didn't put a riff in their relationship or what have you. Then two weeks before... Roberto's death. That's not really any spoilers. Obviously, that's why we're talking about this. Someone gets murdered, sadly. He had been out at a bar with one of her friends named Deborah Rowe, and supposedly he made a pass on her. And Deborah was pissed off and told him, you know, fuck off, basically. And at this point, she was already like not trusting him and all of this stuff because Suzanne had told Deborah around this time that she was planning on breaking up with him because she was frightened of him and he had threatened to kill her. Oh, wow. Yes. And this area, from when I was watching interviews and stuff, it said that they loved the gossip. So 
the story of him hitting on Deborah got around fast and people assumed it was because he knew the relationship between him and Suzanne was going to be over and he didn't care, blah, blah, blah. Because obviously, like, the cheating history that I'll get into, they didn't know this at first either. Well, on top of this, around this time too, the two weeks before his death, she went and talked with the sheriff's office about all of this as well. And she had told them the same thing. She said she was frightened for her safety and her life because Roberto had threatened her and said he would, quote, tie me upside down, murder me, and watch my blood drip onto the bed. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, of course, the sheriff's department is going to take that seriously because holy fuck. And they told her, you know, file all the paperwork, not only for a restraining order, but do an emergency protective order because that would go into effect immediately. Because obviously, as we have learned now, as the show has went on, restraining orders obviously take a while. But she doesn't do any of it, which the police found weird. That is really weird. It is. So flash forward a couple weeks to September 6th. This is the day she says that she told him it was over, that they were breaking up, that he needed to get out of her house. And she did tell friends and whatnot that the breakup did happen. Then the next morning, she states that she wakes up, heads down to her little kitchenette or what have you, and he's there. And she says to him, quote, what are you doing in my kitchen eating a croissant, Roberto? I told you we're breaking up end quote. And he said he had been coming to get his horses because there was like this big fancy polo event that he still wanted to go to because he was going to have the opportunity to play with the National Argentinian team. And there was like a lot of important people going to be there. It was like a whole fancy fucking thing. So like this was happening on the 8th the following day. And she was like, uh, fuck no, that's not happening. I'm not taking you to that. You know, all this shit. And after this, she said that pissed him off and he grabbed her arm by the wrist and, quote, took out his pearl-handled knife, end quote, which is normal before anyone gets, like, freaked out, like, oh, my God, what the fuck? It was just essentially, it was like a little pocket knife-looking thing. It wasn't, like, Mm. a machete or anything crazy. Oh, I, for some reason, just thought, like, a hoof knife. Yeah, it was just, like, a little knife. I mean, obviously, he worked with, like, horses and stuff. Like, it makes sense he would carry one, you know? And then also, Travis had said, culturally, I guess, and I, I don't know, but this is just what he said, it was normal for, you know him to have one too because he said you know back home he would always have one and like you know for food just cut things up and things like that so you know nothing alarming but with this said knife according to Suzanne he held it against her cheek and then ran it down her arm and sliced her multiple times she then says she told him to calm down and sit down or what have you but she felt like he was going to go after her again so she had a gun in her kitchen cupboard cabinet thing which I guess like to regular people like us, we're like, what the fuck? Why is one in your goddamn kitchen? But again, daughter of a billionaire arms dealer, she actually had like a ton of guns and loved guns and knew how to properly use them and all this shit. So it's like, okay, well, maybe that's just like, maybe she just has them concealed in like multiple places of her house, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's the thing. I know people like that. Anyways, she said that he had lunged at her, so she shot him to protect herself. She shot him four times. That's a lot. Yes, she shot him four times. And according to her timeline, she says she called 911 right after this happened. And if you do happen to watch the Vanity Fair episode, you can hear the 911 call. I do have to say she is super 
calm. But it kind of goes with her whole like doesn't ever show emotion type of shit. Basically, she's telling him Roberto's been shot. My boyfriend or ex-boyfriend's been shot. And then the operator's like, is he dead? And she says yes. And then they're like, did you shoot him? And she's like, well, I have the gun. And the operator's like, but did you shoot him? Like, did you kill him? You know? And they kind of go back and forth. And then she's like, well, I need my lawyer. And, you know, before I answer any questions like this, blah, blah, blah. So they're like, okay. So they send the authorities out there, right? And they get there really, really fast. Like the response time is super fast. So keep that in mind. And they say when they get there, she appears to be kind of like shaken. And then they see these wounds on her arms and she's waiting for them by the front door. Now, she had described them as gashes and everything. But with the responding officers, they were like, honestly, it was superficial at best because there was no signs of force or any trauma. It was like barely scraped on her arm. Like one of the cops was like, it literally was scrapes on her arm. And I saw pictures and it was not anything like, yeah. Life-threatening? Yes. No, 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 no. Which considering what she was saying, how the encounter went, that he like was being abusive and coming after her and stuff, like there should have been some kind of something, you know? Also, oh my gosh, there is a ton of physical evidence with this we're going to talk about that went over on the documentary by Sean Walters. He was one of the first ones on the scene. He was one of the first detectives on the scene. And so he's talking about her arm more and he's like, so we look at her arm and it's like bleeding and we're like, okay, so like this checks out so far that, you know, it just happened. Like she called right after she shot him. Of course she's bleeding, right? Well, would have made sense. But first, there's no blood on his knife, which they thought was weird. And when they went in to look at Roberto and the crime scene and everything, there was some interesting things that kind of made them go like, hey, wait a minute, this something's off. So first was the state of his body. His blood was already coagulating. So obviously, this suggests that time had passed. They had estimated about 35-ish minutes from their time of arrival is when he died. And like I said, they got there hella quick. So it wasn't like they took 35 fucking minutes plus to get there. They got there within like a couple minutes. And it was also the position of his body. He was face down and his lower half of his body with his legs and everything was underneath the table. So suggesting that he had been shot from the chair so he wouldn't have gotten up like she said Mm. and then she also it's interesting she later says in court sorry i'm like jumping around a little bit but just to tell you the inconsistencies she says in court that she heard the chair scrape not that he was actually up up and that she reacted out of fear and that's when she shot him so she changed her story to like try to match the evidence Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And another thing to note, too, with her original story is that in the kitchen, there was no signs of struggle at all. Like the kitchen was totally fine besides like where he had been shot, totally clean, everything like that. And then the four shell casings, that's it. And of course, upon further investigation in the house, they had found the holster that belonged to the gun and it was not in the cupboard, but it was in her bedroom. <laughs> so they were like... This made them think, you know, the bedroom was where the gun normally was because it was like put up. The holster was like put up somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, and she was like, well, maybe it's possible she thought this out and brought the gun down with her because all these other weird red flags are here. So like we're going to actually take a look at this. Well, Suzanne would be arrested for this and she would be released on bail two weeks later. Surprise, surprise. And her defense lawyer was an interesting person. His name was Blair Howard. And apparently he was like a super well-known lawyer, which is like, okay, makes sense. But the interesting thing was apparently he had beef of some sort with Roberto. Hmm. So 
Interesting. Interesting. Conflict of interest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how this whole Vanity Fair thing happened is there was a reporter who went out there originally. The one I said talked to Jean-Marie. Her name was Judy Bachrock, and she had caught wind of this and she was like, oh, my God, the media is going to eat this up. I need to get out there and get this because it's an heiress, killed her boyfriend, all this stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. So she went and she said that she actually talked to Suzanne. And then at this time, like she was super, you know, forthcoming and talkative and stuff. And she talked to like a ton of people. And this is like how we found out most of this stuff, to be real with you. And obviously, just because she made bail, like they were still moving forward with murder charges and what have you. Both sides are working on their case. And the defense obviously starts doing some digging on Roberto's past because, of course, Suzanne's defense is this whole thing was self-defense. She was worried for her. She was scared for her life. Well, they found some stuff. So in September of 1987, in Illinois, a 911 call would come in from a, quote, hysterical woman named Margaret Bonnell. She was dating Roberto at the time. She had found out that he was cheating on her with not one but two women. And the way she found out was they showed up at her house. Oh, damn. Yeah. He, of course, denied it. And he's like, I had no clue. I have no clue what they who they are, blah, 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 what they're talking about, all this stuff. And then that led to Margaret and Roberto getting into an altercation. And it was a domestic violence situation. And he actually at that time was charged with a class one felony of battery. Oh, shit. Yes. But what was weird was a month later, Margaret recants everything and said that it didn't happen and he isn't charged, you know, like it's dropped, everything like that. She had said to the police that she was mean and vengeful because of the cheating thing, and that's why she did this. And victims also recant when they feel like they have to. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Because I'm like, that's a pretty serious fucking charge to just, like, pull out of your ass. That's not really a thing. But, you know, just made me feel bad for her. But then another relationship is uncovered, and it's with a woman named Kelly Quinn. And she was actually engaged to Roberto and claims that he was very erratic when she tried to leave him. He is the same kind of thing. He was cheating on her and never saved any money, like just blew money all the time. So she was over it and didn't want to get married to him, which, I mean, can you blame her? No. And obviously wanted to end the relationship. Well, when that relationship ended, he began to stalk her. And this was in right before he like had moved up permanently to Virginia. So this is Mm -hmm. in like 94, right? And she said that she had been driving with a male friend. She was driving him home one night and Roberto followed them. And he got in front of her car and basically like stopped. And she had to go on the median so she didn't crash into him. That's crazy. Like rear end him. I know. And then she talks about how he had chased them, like, you know, in their car and everything. And then she eventually did lose him. And she had decided to file a restraining order. But then again, it's the same thing. She drops it and she just says, like, she was regretful that she filed it and just, like, had a whole different story. So just very odd. And it's like, well, you know, because I instantly thought, too, like, the whole, like, you know, these victims, like, they get scared to report some, like, what is he saying to them that's making them flip like a 180? It's scary, you know? So 
In May of 1998, the trial begins, and they were going after first-degree murder for Suzanne. Well, on May 13th, this went really fast. So on May 13th, the jury had deliberated, and they had a decision ready to go. Oh, damn. I mean, she was like, yeah, I shot him. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it wasn't anything had to be super drawn out. So they sentenced her with voluntary manslaughter, and she was given 60 days in jail with a fine of $2,500. Excuse me, what? Mm Mm-hmm. She shot a dude. Exactly. I know, right? I just like, for a second, I was like, did my brain just die? Nope. Did I not process that correctly? What? Nope. And if that's not screaming privilege enough, I have a quote, a passage here from an article that talks about like prison arrangements that happened. And I'm going to read that to you. Yes, it says, quote, before the arms heiress even showed up Saturday to begin her 60 days of imprisonment for the killing of her Argentinian polo playing lover. I'm like, puke, like just use his name. Like, why you got to be disrespectful? But whatever. Other prisoners were cleared out of the women's cell block so she could pay her debt to society in private. The dorm style room had its own telephone. Sheriff Joseph Higgs transferred five prisoners to jails in neighboring communities at an estimated cost to the county taxpayers of $40 per prisoner per day. Out of concern for Cummings' safety, a spokesman said, officials said they feared that Cummings' light sentence might lead to friction with other inmates serving longer sentences for lesser crimes. Once Cummings was inside, her jailer relaxed the rules. Prisoners generally were allowed no more than three visitors for no more than a total of 30 minutes and only on weekend days. Cummings, though, had a permit to entertain multiple visitors for hours each day. End quote. So, yeah, she got away with that shit all along. And then on top of that. That's insane. There's more. Like, my brain isn't computing. There's more. And on top of that, she was allowed to eat foods from her mom and sister when they came to visit. Like, they'd bring sandwiches and snacks and stuff. And other inmates were not. Like, that was a rule. You could not do that. But she could. And then, of course, because, like, I was reading articles from, like, the 90s when this was happening. And a reporter talked to the chairman of the Board of Supervisors. And... He was like, I get why she would be in isolation if it was a danger, blah, 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 but that he was, quote, dismayed to hear of her other privileges, and that's not right. She should be treated like other prisoners, end quote. And I hope he means that, but it's also kind of like, I don't know, I kind of got like, well, I didn't do it, but this is, I'm disappointed. That's kind of like the attitude I got. (laughs) Right. So. I mean, like, that's that's absolutely ridiculous. The whole thing. Just ridiculous. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 100%. And the media spoke to actually some of the inmates that were in there with her. And one was named Nina Daniels. And she had said, quote, we were led to believe that they were afraid we might tease her or something because she's rich and we're common folk, end quote. And I'm like, okay. And then another lady was like, look, we're not the ones who's in jail for murder. She is. Right. We're not going to do anything to her. What the fuck? (laughs) She's like, obviously, we thought it was bullshit because she got 60 days for murder. Right. And one lady's like, I got two years for like credit card fraud and like stealing. Like, I mean, yes, you should serve time for that. But she's like, I did something compared to murder. You know what I'm saying? Like compared Mm -hmm. to murder, you know. But I was just like, damn. What the fuck? So she would actually be let out. Oh, I forgot to mention, too. So before she went to prison, during her trial and stuff, like her dad had died, they actually let her go to his memorial thing. And this was like in Monaco. It wasn't even in the U.S. They let her fucking go. Oh, shit. I was like, I could understand if it was down the street, but Monaco, no. No, it was in Monaco. And they like timed everything for her to go into custody, like after she got back. That's insane. Of course. Yeah, right? 
And she would be let out in under the 60 days. So she wasn't even in there two months. Most articles said she served 51 days. A few said 57. But either way, it's like under two months. Let that fucking sink in. Both is ridiculous. And after this, she would head back to Ashland Farm. And another thing that pissed me off, too, was after her trial, they asked her, like, how she felt about all this. And she was like, I feel happy. And I'm like, what the fuck? Well, yeah, I'd feel happy, too, if I should have gone away for life and got less than people do for, like, stupid shit. Exactly. Fuck. And then, like, this is how you know that it's, like, a whole fucked up thing because, like, I don't know, just, like, stereotyping rich old men going to be like, oh, good for her. She learned her lesson. No, they were like, what the fuck? Right. Like the people like Travis and Susie, they were like every no one took her side. Suzanne said Suzanne's side. Everybody was like, what the actual fuck? Whether it was self-defense or not, you still killed a person. Literally, Gypsy Rose got put in prison for how fucking long? Like 10 plus years? She didn't even do it. She just conspired to do it. Exactly. So, oh, everyone was just like, what the actual fuck? And then her time in court would not end because flash forward to 2004, Margaret, the first lady I mentioned, the Mm -hmm. one who got cheated on with two ladies or whatever, she actually had a kid with Roberto who was now 10. And he and her, basically the son and the ma and Margaret, they had been battling with Roberto's family, like his, I don't know if it was like his mom or something, for like who was going to get like his estate when he died in this. And it was like a whole fucking thing. But it got, I think I'm pretty sure got awarded to the son. And like his family was like, well, he dipped out when he was just a baby and blah, blah, blah. And they had no relationship. And I'm like, yeah, but he literally died when the kid was a baby. Like, they didn't have an opportunity to have a relationship. Right. Like, she hadn't cooled down from the cheating thing yet. Right? Like, what the fuck? But after all of that got settled, they sued Suzanne for mental anguish and other emotional damage. And they wanted a payout of almost $16 million. It was like $15.8 million. I mean, good for them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Margaret was also quoted saying, Justin's upset about all of this. It's difficult. He feels like he's been robbed. He's seen pictures of Suzanne and knows that that's the one who killed his dad. We have a lot of issues. That's why we're driving out to Virginia to make it like a mini vacation, end quote. Like, Margaret's a little odd. I just think that Roberto, like, dated weird women. Yeah. And just fucking weird. But the settlement ended up being rumored to be a payout of just $140,000. Oh, wow. that That's quite a difference. Yes. And in articles I was reading about that, it said Margaret came out looking hella pissed and hella mad and all this shit. And Suzanne was like looking all happy and like, da, 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 da. and then she said some little like offhanded quote. Yeah, this went exactly how I thought I would, because apparently she had offered 140K and they were like, no, fuck you. Like we want the millions of dollars. And so she's like, that's what we got. I'm happy with the outcome. Because, you know, she's a fucking heiress to a billionaire fortune. That's like nothing to her. I was expecting it to be like a mil, like they settled for a million. No. That's crazy. 140K. Yeah. And that same year, Deanna and Suzanne sold Ashland Farm for $4.9 million. And after that, they moved to another estate that their dad had purchased while he was alive. And that's where they reside. They live on over 450 acres. And she's said to just kind of like do her own thing and live a regular life now, basically like it never happened. It's like Lizzie Borden. Mm -hmm. So yeah, 
That is our case for this episode. Thank you, Anne, for not only requesting this because I had never heard about this. There's not a lot out on it, so it was a lot of digging, but it was worth it. Very sad and just kind of weird. Like, I don't know. It just it it's such a like crazy story. It doesn't even seem real. Like, but it is obviously, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, it's just really interesting. But if you would like to have your own dedicated episode and to support the show, you can go to patreon.com backslash three spooked girls. This part does start at our $10 tier. And with that, we will go ahead and wrap things up and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.